It is indeed a great blessing for us all to be together. As God has designed for us to come together on the first of the week to stir one another up to love and good works as we worship Him together. So thankful for the worship that's already been offered up. Grateful to join my heart together with yours. Thank you for joining yours together with mine, lifting up our voices that He gave us in praise to Him, restoring a portion of what He's given us to the work that He's given us to do, remembering that sacrifice that He's made on our behalf. It may seem new to some of you to be doing these things. For some of you, we've been doing this for a long time now. But I want you to go back a couple of thousand years and think about those Jews on Pentecost who responded to Peter's preaching of the gospel and how this was all new to them. There were some things that were familiar, but what we're going to see today is there was a lot that was brand new for them. Jesus had warned them that following him would cost them They would have to take up their cross, that they may lose members of their families, that they would be persecuted and kicked out of the synagogues. And as our brother just read, there were 3,000 who gladly received the word that Peter was preaching that day. And these are 3,000 that would have found themselves in that situation if their families were not also convinced. If the major members of their synagogue were not also converted, then they would have found themselves in the promised land, but people without a land. Many of them had come traveling from far away and decided to stick around to learn more, but they would have gone back different people and they wouldn't have been accepted in some of the places they were used to going to. What I want you to consider is how much these 3,000 people needed each other at that very outset, how much they needed to be together, and how much they needed the teaching that was coming from the apostles. Today we're going to focus on specifically on the teaching They continued steadfastly, we're told, in Acts 2.42, in the apostles' doctrine, in uh, fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. I'd like to begin a series today looking at each of these things sort of individually, but I want to talk about the impact and the difference that these things would have had in their lives as they began to gather together. The first thing we see is that they they did these things steadfastly. This comes from a Greek word, proskartereo, to be strong toward, to endure in. It talks about continual perseverance. You see that in some of the translations. The English standard says they devoted themselves. The New American standard says, and they were continually devoting themselves to these things. I like the Darby translation that brings out this word, and they persevered in. And so we're going to begin looking today at some of the things they were persevering in. And the first thing we'll see is they persevered in the apostles' doctrine. When we talk about doctrine, really what we're talking about here is that body of things that were being taught. Sometimes when we hear the word apostolic, especially in our day and age when someone says they belong to an apostolic church, they aren't necessarily speaking of the teaching. What they're speaking of is that they are doing, they claim, what the apostles did. And what they mean by that is they're practicing faith healing, they're practicing tongue speaking, they're practicing prophesying, just as the apostles did. But that is not what this word means in the reference here. This Greek word, didache, talks about the thing that is being taught or the act of doing the teaching. That's what they're persevering in. Now, it is true. In Acts chapter 1, Luke goes ahead and tells Uh, Theophilus, in the very first verse, the things he's writing about are the things that Jesus did and taught. We learn from both of those things. When God-approved people are doing God-approved things, that's an example for us. But that is not the point here. 
While certainly the apostles are teaching and then giving examples of these things, what these people who were there in that day were persevering in was learning the message that the apostles were teaching. The emphasis was on the word. The emphasis is on the word that was being taught. I want you to notice that even as, as Peter is speaking in this sermon. In Acts chapter 2, verse 14, Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. <laughs> Listen to what I'm going to say. The words are important. And he begins to speak the words that God has given him to say to these people. In verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the purpose and foreknowledge of God, you took by lawless hands, crucified, and put to death. <laughs> Hear these things. This is an indictment given down in a statement of conviction. In verse 40, with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. What the apostles were doing on this day was teaching. They began the teaching from this moment forward. I want you to think about how much of the New Testament doctrine these Jews on Pentecost knew when they were converted on that day. Uh, 3,000 people were converted. Not one iota. <laughs> the New Testament doctrine itself had not been revealed yet. It was about to be revealed through these apostles with their prophetic agency that God was giving them. Certainly, Jesus had spoken of some of the things he was going to require of his disciples. But to be a Christian and to worship together as a church, that had not been revealed yet. They were revealing this doctrine, this teaching from this moment forward. And these 3,000 people wanted to know that. They had just heard from Peter's preaching. In verse 37 and verse 36, they heard that Jesus, whom they crucified, is both Lord and Christ. When they heard this, when they heard these words, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? He told them what to do to have their sin forgiven. But what they're asking is, if he is Lord, if he has command over our lives, what do we need to do with our lives? What does he command? Tell us. And these apostles who are ambassadors for him began teaching those things that day. Those who gladly received his word, verse 41 says, were baptized. That day about 3,000 souls were added to them, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' word, in what the apostles were teaching. What the apostles were teaching was the fulfillment of prophecy. This is what all of Israel had been hoping for. It's what we've been looking at in the book of Isaiah. This is the moment when God is going to restore perfectly his people in himself. This was not about some political restoration. It was not about a return to some physical promised land. This was so much more. It was the hope of Israel. It was the hope of all men who would be coming in. In the text, in, in Acts chapter 2, Peter has been citing the prophets Joel and David specifically, maybe some mentions of some others. But look what he says. Uh, these are the words that he's speaking, starting in, uh, in Acts 2 verse 16. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. 
And it shall come to pass, it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the emphasis of his teaching. That language is a language that's not as familiar to us. It sure is fantastic. A lot of people make speculations about language like this. This is something the Jews were used to hearing. This is language from the prophets that speaks of a day of judgment. A day of redemption and a day of judgment walk hand in hand. If redemption has come to the house of Israel and to all men, judgment has also come. And so in this language of judgment, the message is salvation is available. So he's quoting from Joel there in verse 25. He's speaking of the Christ now. And he says, David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. What Peter says is that David was not speaking of himself. They thought he was, but he's speaking of the Christ. He's speaking of the one that had been prophesied and had been shown to him through the words of these prophecies. And then in 34 and 35, David did not ascend into the heavens. He wasn't saying about himself, but of one who ascended, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know that God made this Jesus whom you crucified, whom he raised up, has made him Lord in Christ. That's what they're teaching. Under inspiration, it's amazing to see how the apostles taught Jesus over and over and over. What they spoke of is Jesus. When Paul is going about in all the synagogues, he's teaching Jesus as the Christ. And he's using the Old Testament to point to these, to point to these prophecies that were uh, leading to this one man. And this man, Paul has known. The apostles have known him. And he is the one who fulfilled these prophecies. And so there are these words that are coming from inspiration that all speak of Jesus. Over and over, we see that in Acts 2. We've seen several there. Look in Acts 11, uh, verses 25 and 26. Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. He's been in Antioch now. There are Gentiles coming in for the first time in the church. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. This is what the apostles are doing. They're giving doctrine. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. They've been hearing about this one who is the Christ, and so they become Christians. They become Christians. They become like him because they're doing what he has revealed to do. In Acts chapter 17, first four verses there, just another example of this. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded. A great multitude of devout Greeks, not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. They're speaking of Jesus. The words they're teaching are words that Jesus gave them that speak of him and of his will for them as their Lord. What they're speaking we call the gospel. It's a good message, literally. It's good news. It is, in essence, not a continuation, though it has its roots in Judaism. It is not a continuation of Judaism. It is something new. It is good news. In Hebrews chapter 8, as the Hebrew writer there is quoting from Jeremiah, but I'll read it in Hebrews, we see this concept of something new that has come along. Hebrews chapter 8, starting at verse 7. 
For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is a confirmation of Jeremiah's prophecy that something brand new was coming along. It's a new covenant, not like the one made before. A covenant that is written with words on the heart of those who would enter in. What this means and what this meant for those Jews on Pentecost is that this is necessarily a change of religion. You might think, well, the Jews would just kind of coast in and continue being good Jews. Some of them culturally continued doing Jewish things. They had a good basis of knowing the one true God and of His Christ from what they had learned. But they could not continue in Judaism and reject the Christ. They had to change religion. The Jew had to become a Christian. The argument in Acts chapter 15 was that as the Gentiles came in, they didn't have to become Jews first. They had to become Christians. The pagans had to become Christians. An atheist, if he believed in God, couldn't just believe in any old thing he wanted to. He couldn't go from an atheist to become a Jew and expect salvation. He must become a Christian. And I want to posit before you that it's possible that even believers, some who may have grown up under some name of Christ, some teaching of Christ, as we grow, we all must have a change of religion. The faith needs to become our own. We need to understand these words. We need to write them on our hearts, and we need to believe them for ourselves. And that may mean that we reject some of the teaching that, that our parents had taught us if they were teaching incorrectly from the Scriptures. If we see it here, this is where we need to be. This is the apostles' doctrine, and that's where we need to stand. There's a need to be taught this new message, and it started that day on Pentecost. They needed to hear these new things. And so do we. But I want you to notice it's not just that they, con they continued in or persevered in the apostles' doctrine. What they persevered in was the apostles' <laughs> doctrine. And that's an important thing to think about. There was the apostles' teaching that had convicted them. Those 3,000 on Pentecost, they believed at what the apostles were teaching. But there was a lot of other things they could have been listening to. A lot of other things they could have put their trust in. There was Jewish thought. There were lots of uh, Jewish fables and genealogies, we're told. In a few minutes, we'll look at a couple verses that talk about those. There was this really well-known teacher named Gamaliel. He was the Apostle Paul's teacher. Paul makes reference to him uh, in Acts chapter 22 and verse 3 when he says, I grew up in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel. I was a Jew of all Jews. In Acts chapter 5, we're told that all the Jews respected him. He was a Pharisee. He was a, a great teacher of the law. But Paul says he threw all of those things away when he became a Christian. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 4, 
He warns Timothy and by proxy the Ephesians, who are where Timothy is when he receives this letter. He says, do not give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. There were lots of Jewish fables and they prided themselves on their lineage. We saw in Isaiah today that even the Jewish nation understood it was not their lineage that was going to save them. God is their father, not Abraham, not Jacob, not any other family line they could have been a part of. Lineage is not what saves. And so they need to not give heed to those kind of fables and genealogies. Similarly, in Titus 1 verse 14, don't give heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. Jesus argued with the Pharisees that they had turned the commandment of God into tradition. They had rejected God's commandment and kept their traditions instead of that. Peter understands how important it is that they understand the truth of God and don't think that Peter and the apostles made up some fable now. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. <laughs> Something different was going on. This was not just some Jewish story, some history. There was Greek and Roman philosophy. You know, Jesus came along a short time after Socrates and Aristotle. <laughs> The Greek philosophers were in high command at this point. That's who Paul runs into in Acts chapter 17. I'll begin the reading at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. And certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of what you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Boy, they loved their philosophy and loved to hear these new things. And Paul, he was bringing something pretty crazy about a God who had come down and become a man and dwelt among people, that fits right up with some Greek philosophy, their mythology of the pantheon of their gods. Of course, what Paul was teaching was quite different. Romans chapter 1, verse 22, he talks about the philosophy of their day, even the Jewish philosophy, but probably more focused on the, the Roman and Greek philosophy, professing to be wise, they became fools. They've rejected the truth of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20, he asks, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? There was a struggle in Corinth to accept the wisdom of the world rather than the wisdom that came from God. The wisdom from God seems somehow foolish. Who would expect that a man who died on a cross could save the people that he said he was coming to save? And yet that's exactly what God did. In chapter 2, verses 7 and 8 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Certainly, they wouldn't have done themselves in by condemning a just and an innocent man. They didn't understand the wisdom God was revealing. They had it available, but they had rejected it. So they could have turned to Greek and Roman philosophy, but they were presented with the words, the teaching of the gospel. 
they could have turned to false teachers of other gospels. Certainly later on, there's going to be uh, a lot more of that going on. Uh, Paul will write to the Galatians around the year 52 or 53, one of the earliest letters, and tell them to be aware of false gospels that are about. But Jesus had already been speaking of false prophets. He mentioned there would be false Christs who would come in his name and try to deceive even the elect if possible. Jesus had warned that that would happen. In Colossians chapter 2, in Colossians chapter 2 verses 4 through 8, we're going to see another one of Paul's warnings about uh, not giving in to these philosophies of the world and not hearing these false gospels that are presented that look good but are no use. Colossians 2 verses 4 through 8. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. He'll go on to say uh, in verse 20, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Just because men come up with these very staunch rules, just because men come up with lists of things you have to do to be a part of our group, doesn't mean those things came from God. There is emphasis on the word that the apostles taught. That's the word that God sent. And that's the word that these men needed to to conform to. Perhaps the most difficult one to overcome is succumbing to the teaching of their own hearts and desires, our own personal convictions that are challenged by the gospel. All of us, when we come to the gospel, when we have that change of religion, are defeating our own thoughts, our own desires, because we would try to overcome God's will for us. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, he says, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. They will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, and through afflictions do the work of an evangelist fulfill your ministry. Keep teaching the sound doctrine that we've revealed. That was the injunction given to Timothy. He said people will turn away. They'll have itching ears. They'll want to hear something that sounds better, something that feels better to the ear, something that's more palatable. (laughs) It's interesting how many times that God told the prophets what they were eating, the scroll they would eat that they would later teach, would be sweet to the taste It would be sour in their bellies. It was certainly sour to those who heard it. In Isaiah's day, they said, quit preaching line upon line, precept upon precept. We've heard all this before. Let's hear something that sounds a little better. All you're doing is giving us law after law. They weren't obeying. But it's the word of God that we need to be listening to. And that's going to challenge our own hearts and our own desires. In Acts chapter 20, it's an amazing thing that Paul says about some of the spiritually qualified men, men that... God, by His Spirit, had separated to be shepherds of His flock. 
He said to them in Acts 20, verse 29 and 30, I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Their own hearts and their own desires would have them gathering up disciples. It's what the Pharisees and the religious leaders were doing in Jesus' day. It's why they were jealous of him. Because as he taught the simplicity of God's word, the simple people listened and they began to leave, follow him. And they began to threaten them. If you do this, you'll be kicked out of the synagogues. What we see with the apostles' teaching is a simple message taught by simple men. I think we could do no better than what was said about Peter and John in Acts chapter 4 and verse 13. After they healed the lame man and began to confront the Jewish leadership who was saying, we don't want you to teach in the name of Jesus because they were Sadducees and didn't believe in the resurrection. They were teaching that Jesus had resurrected. We don't want you to teach. They told them, well, we're going to because there's no salvation in any other. There's no other name under heaven given among men by, by which we must be saved. That's Acts 4.12. Look at the response in verse 13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. That ought to be the commentary that we're looking for. After someone has talked with us, they would be no better than to hear that person's with the Lord. That person is with Jesus. That's what, that's what we want. We want to leave that impression. Not that, boy, we can sure speak clearly. Boy, he sure has studied a lot. We want to be able to repeat these sound words so people will know that we love Jesus and we're with Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7, Paul speaks about the work that they've been given to do. Paul was sort of a somebody in his prior life before becoming a spectacle before men, as he describes it as one of the apostles. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, he says, We have a treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are nothing. We're like a clay pot. We're fragile. We're broken and beaten down all the time. But these words, this doctrine that we're teaching, that's a treasure. It's being carried about in this earthen vessel. And the point is, no one's going to look at the vessel and think, wow, that guy's intelligent. Whew, look at that message he made up. No, they're going to know the source is somewhere other than him. Jesus chose very well, very wisely, the apostles because they were men of integrity they were men who wouldn't try to change the gospel to fit whatever people wanted to hear, whatever they thought would sound better. They were men who were going to teach the truth. We have an example in Acts chapter 6, starting at verse 8, of one of the men that was chosen just after the apostles, one of perhaps the deacons early on, a servant. And here's what's said about Stephen. Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 8. Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. And there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. I want to make an emphasis on that last thing there. Some people see he's doing all these great signs and these great powerful miracles, and he was. But when it came time to talk about the doctrine, he spoke. And he spoke in such a way that they could not refute what he was saying was speaking truth. The signs were for unbelievers. When he sat down to talk with believers, he said, here's the truth. Are you going to believe it or you're going to reject it? But here's the truth. These were people who claimed to believe in God. Most of them ended up rejecting this truth. But among Gentiles and among unbelievers, he began uh, with his teaching, he did the signs as confirming. 
And so uh, Stephen is an example of the kind of man that Jesus was choosing when he chose the apostles. This was the next group that was chosen then when the, five, when the number had reached 5,000 in Jerusalem. And they sought out these men full of the Holy Spirit and faith that would teach soundly the doctrine, the words that had been passed on to them. The apostles' teaching clearly was what was sanctioned by God. They had been chosen for this purpose. In John 14, John 15, and John 16, Jesus begins to tell them that he's going to leave them, but he's not going to leave them orphans. He's going to send his spirit, a helper, a comforter, to guide them into all truth, to teach them all things that they should say. And so they would be able to reveal then his word. In John chapter 17, as Jesus is praying in the garden, we get a longer version of his prayer here as he's praying for those who will follow. And here's what he says. John 17, starting at verse 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Speaking of both the apostles and later those who will follow after them. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Those who will believe because of their word. This is what those 3,000 were gathered to hear. The word that God had sent through these men. In Acts chapter 1, we see Jesus confirming that promise. It's going to come on these apostles. Uh, and He tells them to wait for it in Jerusalem. They'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not in many days. And that's what we see happen in Acts chapter 2. And then Peter begins to preach. They were given, through that means, the credentials they needed to continue this service that Jesus had begun. He came in the power and spirit of God. He came speaking the truth and confirming the truth of God with the signs that accompanied him. In Mark chapter 16, the last two verses tell us that after the Lord had spoken to them, the apostles, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they, the apostles, went out and preached everywhere. The Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Those signs accompanied the apostles as they did their teaching of these words that he had given them to teach. It was a sanctioning of the message and of the messengers as they were handing it out. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John had healed the lame man. and That's where the conversation happened with the, the Sanhedrin council. If you look at chapter 14 of Acts though, I love how this straight parallel uh, is a straight parallel to what we just saw in Mark chapter 16. Acts 14, verses 1 through 3. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord. Notice they spoke and they continued speaking. Speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. That's exactly what we were told was going to happen in Mark chapter 16. That's what the apostles knew was going to happen if they would preach faithfully his word. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 says God confirmed the message through those signs. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, I work the signs of an apostle among you. You know what I spoke to you was true because you saw the very signs. And the way Paul uses that description in 2 Corinthians 12 He's speaking of a badge of authority, something that proves that he is the real deal. He's authentic, that the word is not his. It belongs to God, and as God is giving it to them, uh, to the people through the apostles. Finally, the apostles' teaching was registered or recorded for today. 
we don't need new apostles. <laughs> they wrote down what they were teaching. They wrote it down so we would have it. Somebody asked me one time in Brazil, do you all not have apostles at your church? Uh, it was one of these apostolic churches where they still have a continuing succession of apostles. And I said, we sure do. And they said, well, who are they? And I said, the same 13 we see in the New Testament. Um, they're no longer alive, but we have apostles. They did their job, and we have the result of what they did right here. There's no need for new apostles. They wrote the word down. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 3 through 5, Paul makes it very clear that he was re revealing this message so they would have it and they could continue sharing in it. By revelation, he made known to me the mystery as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. I'm writing it down. Colossians chapter 4, verse 16, we see there was an expectation in the early church that they would circulate the letters. He says, after you've read this letter, make sure the Laodiceans read it, and you read the letter that they've got. There was already this circulating of the apostles' doctrine that had been written down. The apostles couldn't be in every place. They sure did a good job getting around. But they couldn't be everywhere, but they could send their letters off to places they couldn't be. And yet it was still the apostles' doctrine that was being sent around. We don't need new apostles. We need to pay attention to what they wrote down. We're talking about singing new songs. That's a wonderful thing. But if we're doing new doctrine, we've missed the point. This is the doctrine. The apostles revealed it for us. And their word is all we need. It's all sufficient to save. Going back to 2 Peter 1, just before he said, you can trust me on this, this is not some wives' tale or some fable. Here's what he says, starting at verse 12, 2 Peter 1, verse 12. For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. The point I want to make with this is Peter knew he was dying. He's been saying, I'm toward the end of my life. I'm, I'm in prison and I'm going to be put to death. So if I'm an apostle and there's new things to be revealed, I'm spending my last days writing everything down I can. What he says is, you already know the truth. It's already been written down. It's already been revealed. I want to remind you to go back and look at it. By Peter's, the end of Peter's life, around 70 AD, just before that, the doctrine had already been revealed. There are a few letters that were written after that that record for us things that hadn't been registered in the earlier letters, but the doctrine has been taught everywhere that the doctrine has gone, everywhere the apostles have gone. Peter says, don't look for new things. Look back to what you've already learned. Look back to what's already been revealed. What did Paul say about those things that had already been revealed? In Romans chapter 1, he made it very clear why it's so important that we keep looking back and don't look for something new or something different. Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 15, he says, As much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. <laughs> Paul understood that the gospel, that this doctrine, this word delivered by the apostles that started on Pentecost and that Peter said by the end of his lifetime was already revealed and being written down, that that's all sufficient, all they need. It's the power of God to salvation for all who will believe. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and their teaching, 
in the teaching of the apostles. They were the ones who were sanctioned by God to send these things out. They were lost before having had the gospel taught to them. They asked when they realized how lost they were, men and brethren, what shall we do? We have murdered the Christ. What do we do? Peter told them, repent and let every one of you be baptized for remission of sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what they needed. Without the gospel, they couldn't know that. That was the gospel response. Peter began to teach it then and he taught it everywhere he went, just as Paul and the other apostles did, just as Stephen and Philip and the others did, just as Timothy was encouraged to do, just as I'm encouraging you to do. Teach the apostles' doctrine. These words are important words and they are life. The starting point for their changed lives, for their transformation, for their new religion, if you will, was the gospel. The starting point for any true change is the gospel. If we try to change the gospel, we're not going to change lives. If we teach the gospel and we stand strong and steadfast in the apostles' doctrine, persevering in it as we ought, we recognize how much we need each other for that, just as they recognized 2,000 years ago. They had no one else. We have no one else who thinks like we do, no one else who wants to serve the Lord in truth as we do. And we need to band together and teach others and help others to come to this same conclusion that we've reached. I'm not saying there aren't other Christians out there. What I'm saying is we're here. <laughs> we're together. We're encouraging and building each other up in this service. And let's reach out and find out who else wants to do this with us. There were 3,000 on Pentecost. How many more might there be in East Pittsburgh, in Pittsburgh at large, in Pennsylvania? How many more that we can reach if we'll stand steadfast in the apostles' doctrine? If you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you to consider what the apostles said. Look into this word and see who Jesus was and what he did for you. If we can help you to learn that, we would love to do that. That's what we're here for. If you are a Christian and you're struggling, we want to help you as well to serve the Lord, to come back to this old path that was written down 2,000 years ago that hasn't changed and it's still the power of salvation from God to us. If we can help you in any way, make your need known. We're going to stand and sing this song to encourage your obedience.